Take your Bibles with me. Go to Acts chapter 28. A great place to begin a series is at the end of the series, which is what we'll do here. But as we do that, I want to take you and draw your attention to the menu of activities that are available to you. It's a little one half sheet piece of paper on front and back at the top. It says CBC Messenger. If you got one of those coming in today, then I would encourage you to grab it very quickly because I want to make a comment or two about what is there just under the title where we find our vision statement that says this, Crestwood, a connected community, and okay, so now I'll stop because you know me, I can't just continue to get it all in at one fell swoop. Um, if I'm going to kind of let you in on a little secret on how I choose the stuff that I preach here. Everything that I preach, every series that we go into is tied somehow to this vision statement. And I, let me just expand that out to say, if you sit on any committee of this church, whatever that committee is doing or any program organization of this church must be tied to this vision statement. If it's not, then you need to drop what you are doing and do something that does tie to this because this statement is what we as a church have said is, is what we believe God's direction for us as a church. And there are multiple facets to this. And so one of the things that I do when I choose sermon series that we're going to go into or are in is it's tied directly to this statement somehow. And I spent all summer preaching through what I believe is the, of the five plus years that I've been here now, what I preached this summer is what I believe is probably the most important series that I've preached since I've been here. So if you missed some of those, I know that it sounds self-serving for me to say this, but because of the importance of what we talked through this summer, if you missed any of those, you really ought to go to the website or go to our podcast uh, and, and download that and listen to those sermons because they need to be driving us as a church on what it means to be a connected community. That was where the series was rooted. Back to the statement. Crestwood is a connected community that produces disciples who gather regularly for vibrant worship. And then the phrase that I want us to get to today and now as we go into this new series is the last one that says dispersing, having done those other things, dispersing into the communities of Southeast Texas and beyond, sharing life. That sounds great, but how do we do that? What practically does it look like when a church disperses into the community sharing life. As we go into the days ahead, we're going to be looking at this series in the book of Acts, and we're starting at the end today, but we're also going to go back to Acts chapter 1. But as we do this, I want you to catch this one single word that's going to drive the whole series. What we find in the book of Acts, among other things, comes down to this truth we must, and the one word is, engage. Now, the picture here is of engaging. Uh, today, the NFL starts, right? Uh, so the real season begins, and we have 
people on all sides of the, uh, the pro football fence in here. We're not so much on pro football. We love college football around here for the most part. And so how about them Baylor Bears? Wow, that's a very <laughs> underwhelming response you just gave me there. Okay, so I could say LSU, whatever they are, or um, what's that other school east of them? Your, your mom, your Alabama, that's what it is. Um, but, but one of the things that we love about college football, that I love about college football, more so than pro football, is there is this intensity that you get in those games. Because what you find is on the field, there are these 22 guys at any given moment who are engaging one another in sport. But as they're doing that on the field, and that means hitting each other, knocking each other's blocks off and trying to get concussions to the other guy, all of those kind of things. While that engagement is happening on the field, there is another level of engagement of these tens of thousands, and in some cases, 100,000 plus fans who are sitting in the, the seats around that, and they are engaging in the sporting event at a different level, but they're engaging nonetheless. And so you get college students who, you know, take their shirts off and paint themselves up and their faces and all of that kind of stuff. And you see this total, I, I was watching the, uh, what was that game last night? It was TCU and Arkansas. And they kept going back to this one little kid in the stands who was so engaged in the plays that were going on there that when his team lost, they went back to him and he was just crestfallen. This was no, nor is it for us most of the time, arbitrary kind of involvement. This is being engaged in it. I want us to take that term as we work our way through the book of Acts. Because we have a calling. Actually, it's a twofold calling that we find in this passage, or in the, in the whole book especially, but as we will see in today's passages, that we are to engage first and always first on a vertical level. Now, we talk about our experience with Christ, and we talk about being Christ followers, and all of that's fine, but when we come to the book of Acts, what we really find is a focus because of a relationship with Christ, and as Christ being the only way to salvation, the emphasis in the book of Acts is more on the Holy Spirit than it is on Christ. It's not that, now, we need to be careful here because we fall into practical um, polytheism where we kind of divide God up and say, well, that's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And practically, we start treating them like they're three different gods. It's just one God. We believe the Trinity. Well, I believe the Trinity. I don't know what you believe. But that's how we try to explain this. And you will rarely hear me quote John MacArthur. But in this case, John MacArthur said it may well be that this book, the title that you see in many Bibles, The Acts of the Apostles, should have been entitled The Acts of the Holy Spirit. So as we go into this, one of the things, it's a recurring theme that we will find here, is that we must be engaged with the Holy Spirit in our daily living. And we'll find examples as we work our way through this of individuals with whom the Holy Spirit gives very clear communication, and it involves them to the level then of the next step, which is that horizontal engagement. We not only are to be engaged in a relationship with God, 
We also are to be engaging people with the good news of Jesus Christ. That's all through the book. As a matter of fact, you can't study the book of Acts and overlook that because it is in there on every page, I suppose. So let's stop for a moment. I know we had not got to the text yet, but uh, let's stop for a second to consider how effective this early church was. I did a little looking this week. If we play the averages, um, then the, the average or, or the odds, that's if we play the odds, that's a gambling term and I learned it from one of our deacons and I'm still having trouble getting it right all the time. Uh, if we, that's not true. The deacons didn't teach me that. My wife taught me that. Um, so, uh, <laughs> man. Um, if we play the odds, odds are that more people in this room have an iPhone than any other kind of phone. Now, you may not, and that's, that's all well and good, but those are the odds, I'm told. So Forbes, in their annual list of the biggest public companies, this year, 2016, found that Apple, who manufactures iPhones, is number one in rating relative to the world's most valuable brand. If I read their reports right... They are worth something around two hundred and thirty-three and a quarter billion dollars. Not only that, they also are the number one rank for market value, the number one rank for profit. It is difficult to watch TV where phones are visible and miss an iPhone. There's something about that brand, Apple that people seem to, are, uh, to be drawn to. But it wasn't always that way. Roughly 40 years ago now, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, if I pronounce that correctly, had to scrounge up $1,350. Steve Jobs sold his car to come up with some of that money. Wozniak sold some of the personal computer, uh, personal uh, calculator stuff that he had been working on, and they pulled their money together, $1,350 for their first project in the what would become company known as Apple. They were so small in the beginning that they had no place to do the stuff that they were doing. Even when they got a contract, they had no place to do this, and so they worked out of his, Steve Jobs' parents' garage. Small beginning that today is a worldwide force. Which pushes me to the early church. Look with me in Acts chapter 28 as we find now the backside, the, the, the tail end report. It's kind of a strange way to end a history And I'll say a little bit more about that in just a moment, but here's what I want you to get. As we come to the end of the book of Acts and the stuff that I'm about to read, where Paul, the apostle, the one who was called on the road to Damascus, finds himself under house arrest in Rome. He has been labeled by some as a threat, and so 
that he was arrested and they couldn't find stuff to get against him, but they continued to push these charges. And so finally, Paul, as a Jew who was a Pharisee, who was converted to being a Christian and following Christ, who was also uh, the guy who ultimately writes half of the New Testament almost, that same Paul, the Roman citizen, appealed to Caesar. And so he finds himself in Rome under arrest. And here's what he has to say, and we could back up. I'm not going to take the time to do it today. We'll get there in probably a year or so. It's the last chapter after all. And uh, Paul pulls together some people, some of the Jews who were there, and talks to them some about his belief. We come to the end of it. And this Paul says, therefore, verse 28 Chapter 28, verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. Interesting statement follows that. They will listen. And the implication in the history is that many of the Jews would not listen. And so Paul becomes this one who early, uh, roughly in the middle, not quite the middle, but early in the book of Acts, has this life-changing experience with Jesus Christ and it turns his whole life and he becomes, in the last part of the book of Acts, he, he becomes the identified face of Christianity. And it takes him, but not just him, it takes this movement. The book of Acts will call it at one point, the way. And the other place we will find that Christians were begun to be called Christians at a certain point, and that was a derogatory term, not a compliment. And this Paul picks up that cause, and that cause that started on a hillside with, relatively speaking, a handful of people, now has found its way throughout the heart of the Roman Empire, throughout what we would today call Turkey. The church center moves from Jerusalem up into Asia Minor and where Turkey is. And ultimately now Paul has moved it over into Greece and Rome is now the focal point at the end of the book. What started small now has become a Roman Empire world force. The amazing thing, well there's several amazing things about that, but that all happens in the space of about 35 years, roughly. Small beginnings, powerful force. That's what we'll find as we work our way through this series in the book of Acts. And every step of the way, the word engage will bubble to the surface. Regular people who follow Jesus Christ and are engaged with the Holy Spirit when it comes to daily living as he pushes them into engagement with real people. And it spreads like wildfire. So with that in mind, we go back to the beginning, Acts chapter 1. Go there with me now. And we find some things that are instructive for us on the front end of this series because on the front end of the series, Jesus is crystal clear 
Jesus is still on the scene here on earth. It's his resurrected body. And so what we find here is Jesus, as he's about to ascend back to heaven, he's been with his disciples post-resurrection for a period of time, and he's been teaching them some more, and they still don't get it. Well, they get it better than they did before the cross and resurrection, but there's still some things that they don't get. And so Jesus, in these first few verses of the book of Acts, he begins or he helps them understand a little bit of what is in the days to come. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, let me just stop there, give you a historical point of reference. The book is written, most most scholars believe that it is by Luke, who's also the author of the book of Luke, the gospel. He was a physician, so we refer to him as Dr. Luke. And he writes the gospel as part of a two-part book, if you will. We might call the book of Acts the sequel. Because in the book of Acts, he picks up after the resurrection of Jesus and he lays out. And so that's where verse 1 comes from. uh, And so verse 2, until the day when he, that is Jesus, was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering By many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And in this, we find this introduction, if you will, of the strategic component of what would become this movement out of the immediate Jerusalem area into the Roman Empire at large and ultimately through history to us today. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says, will be the key for you. But before we get to that, he gives this charge to them. It's the charge that Christians of our day hate to hear. Well, some of them do. Some of us do. This is the charge where he says to them, if you'll notice back to that, uh, he says in verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. So let me just stop there for a minute. And let's see if we wear any of this. Because I'm convinced that one of the problems with modern church and the way we tend to do church is that there is not much strategic waiting. You see, we live, and I talked about this some last week, I don't want to rehash all of that, but we live in a time when, as Americans at least, we push for productivity. And we're busy, and we pack all that we can into the days that we have. And so when we hear this directive that says, hey, I know you want to launch out there and get after it, charge hell with a water pistol and all that stuff, but Jesus says to these guys, just wait. Some of us, that eats us up because we got a plan. And we have, we, we have to, we, we got stuff to do. And yeah, it's stuff for Jesus, so it must be important. And, and sometimes the message that we get from God is, you know, you just need to wait because timing is important. There's more to be said about that. We're going to visit this passage again, so let me just move on. So the strategic component is the Holy Spirit. He says to them, you need to wait until the Holy Spirit comes for you. But this waiting is not perpetual. 
Jesus takes them a step further in verse 6. He says, so when they had come together, Luke says this, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That is so churchy of them. See, here's why I say the, the disciples still didn't quite get it about Jesus. There are some things that they didn't quite get. Now, through the book of Mark, we find that they don't really get who he is until the end, maybe. And then we find this period after the resurrection, and Jesus reveals himself even more to them. And so they, by the, I think at this point, they get that. They, they clearly understand who he is. But now they're misunderstanding how God works. And they're still stuck on that idea that says, hey, he's going to be king and he's going to establish a political kingdom here and Israel is going to rise from the ashes and the unwritten part of that for them was, and because we're his followers, we're going to be somebody in the kingdom. And they're still hung up on that. Status. So they want to force God's hand. Well, we'll get to that all more. But it's at that point that Jesus essentially says to them, that question you ask, is it now that, you're gonna, that I'm going to restore my kingdom? That's none of your business. Stick with what is your business. That's verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But, now here's a key verse for us. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And in these verses, we find a little more being revealed about the Holy Spirit and his direction and how our own personal calling is from him. Jesus says, when he comes, you will be my witnesses. That's a personal calling. I think it's important that we understand a couple of things here. Your Christian experience, your walk with Jesus, that vertical engagement that we're talking about, is a very personal thing. But one of the things that we often run into is that we so focus, if we're going to focus on any of it, we so focus on the personal part of that that we fail to get the other part of that. We so work on the vertical relationship that we let the horizontal relationships go. And so let's hear the words of Jesus here because they're the marching orders for those disciples on that hillside on the fringe of the Roman Empire in a know-nothing, do-nothing part of the Roman Empire other than being a crossroads for trade. There was little to draw the Romans to that place. So these are nobodies except in God's economy they're somebodies. And God says to them, as he says to us, you have a personal calling to be my witnesses. Sometimes in our church thinking, we reduce that to a corporate charge. In other words, 
there is that approach that many take that says, you know what, I go to church, I go to Sunday school, I even sit on committees or whatever, and that's my whole religious responsibility. But the reality is that Jesus is saying to these guys, you, by the way, he's saying it to us too, you have the responsibility, the personal calling growing out of your vertical engagement with me is a necessary, is a commanded, is a natural outflow of being engaged with other people for the cause of Christ. But if we buy into a deal that says, well, yeah, my church does this and, you know, we do a mission trip and we go down to Mexico and we do this and, you know, the we somehow substitutes for the I. And so in our church, the we tends to be about five people who do this stuff. And I want you to hear me say, we're going to find it as we, well, I'll just move a little forward and I'll say it here. Not only is it a personal calling, there's a strategy involved here. And the strategy says to these disciples, you're going to have to bloom where you're planted. You start where you are. You are my disciples. You are my witnesses. And the Holy Spirit will give you the power that you need in doing this. But he says, in Jerusalem. And so let me stop there for a second and say that this is where we're planted For these disciples, he had told them, go to Jerusalem and wait, and the Holy Spirit will come, uh, and, and when that happens, you'll know what you're supposed to do. So now he's saying, in Jerusalem, where you are, that's where you start. And then he takes it a step out, and into Judea, and then a step out, and into Samaria, and then the last part is us to the end of the earth. By the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, they're to the end of the earth. Paul in that stuff that we read at the end there says now because the Jews have rejected this, the Gentiles will listen. And listen they did. And so the center of the church moves from Jerusalem not too far into the book of Acts because of persecution. Because they're like we are. They'd like to be content where they were. And so God sent persecution, drove them out of Jerusalem into the surrounding areas. And so began this march of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be my witnesses. I I really appreciate the video that we saw before I started preaching. Brian does a great job in picking those out and tying those things together for us. And the picture there was of a young man who apparently got it. This personal calling to bloom where he was planted. I have a son-in-law, and uh, I give him a hard time from here, from time to time. Some of it I really do mean. Now, just most of when I'm giving him a hard time picking on him, it's because I'm picking on him. I love him. I have a lot of respect for John. And on this particular point, I have a special respect because my son-in-law has a heart for people. And he didn't mind sharing Jesus with anybody. Uh, we went into to a shop in Silsby one day. He was down here. This is about time they got married. And uh, I, we just had to run in and get something. And this dude apparently cared nothing about my time frame. And so we'd do business with the person, just one person working the shop. And we do business with them, and I'm leaving. And I go out to the car, and John is nowhere to be found. 
Now, you got to know, I thought for a while about just driving off and leaving him. I thought he's might as well learn how road travels operate. And so I thought better of it, waited a little bit, and I went back in and I walked into him talking about Jesus Christ with this individual who was going through some really bad stuff in their lives. Now, I got to tell you, if that was the only time I'd seen John do that, that'd be one thing, but that's just normal for him. You know, he has a real special burden for one particular people group. It's the people group that most Christians in America, or Texas at least, think we should shoot, and that's Muslim people. And John has many discussions. He lives in the Woodlands area, and he goes into coffee shops, and he just waits for him to come in and he sits and he starts talking to him and he gets to a conversation with them about the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. Here's a guy who gets this. He has a long line of people in his wake who've chosen to follow Jesus Christ because of his witness. Is that true of you? In other words, do you get this calling? I know you get it because Jesus gave it to all of us, not just those disciples on that hillside. So I know that it is a calling that is ours, but do you get it? And that's a question that I have to ask myself and you have to ask yourself. But the reality of it is, as an individual Christian... We have to answer that. We also have to answer that as a church. Let me come back and make a couple of quick statements here, and then I want to get to what really is the thing that challenges us, I think. The deal is that we are, as we will find in the book of Acts as we work our way through this, we are to be engaged vertically and horizontally. The people that God has placed in our lives, here's the thing that I have said to you many, many times. You're going to probably get tired of hearing it, but I want you to say it in your casket after you died. That's how much I wanted to be part of you. God has strategically placed you in a circle of people who desperately need life. Some Christians work hard to keep that from being true and surround themselves only with other Christians. That's just wrong. There's certainly nothing biblical about that. He has strategically placed each of us in a circle of people who desperately need life. And so our vision statement, our mission of us as a church is to say that we come here and we disciple here and we worship here and we connect here, but we always disperse from here into the communities sharing life. Are you engaged with the Holy Spirit so as to be directed by him. We're going to find stories as we work our way through here where God specifically breaks into somebody's reality through the Holy Spirit and it changes things. You know a guy named Stephen? How in the world could Stephen stand up in the face of a court that was going to kill him in the end and refuse to back down? And the answer was he was engaged with God on a level that he knew what was going on and he did it anyway. Are you sharing life with people? 
We find stories of guys like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And Paul and Lydia. And we just work our way through the book of Acts and we find this thing as it always bubbles to the surface. We are to be engaged vertically and horizontally. And it drives how we handle ourselves. And so Acts, in, in the book of Acts, we see that a growing church or the growing church, that's with a capital C, is relevant They find a way to take the gospel to where people are. It is innovative. They start off doing what Jews do, going to the temple to worship. And then that gravitates to doing their thing in the synagogues, which ultimately gets so innovative and so groundbreaking that they start doing church in homes. They move to meet the situation as it was. And whatever else you want to say from Acts 1 to Acts 28, the Holy Spirit was incredibly effective working through those people. Here's the kick in the teeth for us. The time frame from Acts 1 to Acts 28 is roughly, can't be exact on this, but it's roughly 36 years. In 36 years, it goes from a handful of people on a hillside on the fringe of the Roman Empire to the courts of power and the halls of power of the Roman Empire as Paul is there ready to make his defense even to Caesar. Don't think for a second that Paul was going to hide who Jesus Christ was in that discussion. 36 years. Next month, Crestwood celebrates our 35th anniversary as a church. Would it be a fair comparison to look at what Crestwood has accomplished in 35 years up against what the Holy Spirit did in the lives of those people in 36 years? Is that a fair comparison? I think in order to answer that, you have to answer this question. Was the Holy Spirit any different today than he was in the first century? Is he any less concerned about people now than he was then? Was this just about growing a church or was it about reaching people for the kingdom of God? And as much as I am proud of our church for 35 years worth of putting the gospel out, I think we're way behind on what happened with that church. So let me turn it to a positive thing as we close. Our musicians can come on up. Let me turn this to a positive statement. I'll make it as a question. What might God do through us and in us if we were committed to engage like they did? Is it possible that this town, Lumberton, or Kuntz, or Silsby, is it possible that we as Christians here might gain the same reputation that some of them had? You know, there's a story in the book of Acts that we'll get to, maybe. It's pretty deep in there. But there's a story in there that talks about some of the key leaders of the Christian movement as they came into a town, and the response of the people in the town were, oh my goodness, These men, this is what the verse says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here now. What is the reputation of this church?
in these communities. Do people look at you as an individual Christian or as us as a church as a turn the world upside down with the good news of Jesus Christ kind of people? Are we engaged? The only way we're engaged is if you're engaged and you're engaged and you're engaged and the preacher's engaged and the staff's engaged and it's engagement on a vertical level and the Holy Spirit begins to drive everything we do. And then it's, vert- uh, then it's horizontal. Who is it in your circle that is dying looking for life? Let's pray. And so, Father, we ask you to burn this message home for us. For those who are here today. They've never engaged with the Holy Spirit in the first place. And Christian means more of a title and more of as a, uh, just one of those labels than it is about a status with you. For those who are here today who need Jesus Christ, Father, I pray that your spirit, the very same one of the book of Acts, would so move in their lives that they would be absolutely terrified of going on without you. Draw them close. Father, I pray for those of us who know you, but yet somehow we've let either one of these engagements that we've talked about today slip. Draw us close to your heart that your spirit would be convicting us even now, drawing us to a better frame of reference in the way we live our lives, making time for you, listening for your voice and then moving us out. Father, for those who don't have someone in their circle who needs you, I pray that you would insert someone into their circle and then not let these people, us, rest at all until that person comes to know you. We pray for a heart of engagement. In Jesus' name, amen.